Welcome to Full Cast and Crew with Chris and Jason. Join us. Never have to worry about whether a movie was good ever again. We will tell you. Chances are it was. Kinda. Never question what genre eternal sunshine of the spotless mind is. It is a rom-com. Never worry who that woman in that thing was. The one you saw on the plane? You know which one I'm talking about. With that funny scene where she gets drunk? Then that twist? It was Anne Hathaway. No longer will one entry on a film's IMDb page threaten you with a free associative trip through posters that look weird and titles that sound embarrassing and intriguing from one half-recognized face to another, leaving you three hours later still in front of your computer, the popcorn gone, and with no idea what you and your partner are going to watch. Just watch Titanic. Chris, you don't seem like yourself. Something's not (laughs) right to me here. Chris, Join we're doing <laughs> Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Ta-da! And in the first, in podcast history, I think this is the first movie we've done where I watched three versions, and I think you watched four versions of this yes. movie. I don't even know if there, I mean, aside from something like Hamlet or <laughs> the Bible. Jesus and Shakespeare. Or King always, Kong. They always win stuff like this. What else has been filmed as many times? You wouldn't say something like James Bond because those are all different stories. No. Yeah. It's a good yeah, trivia this question. Has gotta be the, this has got to be the top. I never thought of that. From one book? I mean, maybe something like Emma. Or Jane Eyre. Yeah. I started reading the Jack Finney novel. You ever read that before? I haven't. It's like living in the upside down. It's, you're not reading this and thinking, wow, this is a really well-written, obviously original piece of work. It's a pretty wooden, you know, everyone speaks exactly the same, even when they're supposed to be not pod people. (laughs) It has a little noir humor of the sort that you see in the Don Siegel version. First of all, we have to set the rules here. We are going to be talking about, well, we're definitely going to be talking at least three versions. I don't know if the one, the, the other fourth one that you so it's probably not even really worth talking about. Only in terms of some of the misbegotten choices. We're going to be talking about the 1956 black and white Don Siegel invasion of the body snatchers. We're also going to be talking about the one that haunted all of our 1970s and 80s childhoods, invasion of the body snatchers 1978 with Donald Sutherland. And we're going to be talking about the 1993 Abel Ferrara version starring Terry Kinney and Gabrielle Anwar. And then you saw the 2003, is it 2003? It's 2007. It's called the invasion and who's in uh, that nicole kidman and daniel craig what and jeremy northam who i forgot existed because <laughs> <I didn't, laughs> poor jeremy there, northam there was a moment there that he was everywhere and uh, now he's gone he's not gone he was just in something i mean i'm sure i'm sure to his mother and yeah. his no his wife on, and his agent no he was in something big recently he's in I, the crown dude oh well i haven't seen that <laughs> gosford park well, Gosford Park. Park, that was in that era when no, he was around. When he was like Anthony everything. Eden in season two of The Crown. After never even really hearing about a 1993 version yeah. and having zero expectations of it, I think it has a lot of interesting things going for it. And it has a lot of improvements in certain things. It uses a military base setting. Mm-hmm. It has a more 90s feeling mixed up family dynamic. It sort of puts the perspective through a teenager slash 20 something and her younger brother. It has a lot of interesting things going for it, but I I think the 93 one suffers from third act problems. Mm -hmm. The 78 one actually is really at its best in its last shot. I think the only other diagnosis I would say for the 93 that it also suffers from early 90s independent cinema-ish 
Because you mean like you the know, Dutch it, angles and the smoke and all oh, that? Oh, I don't even know. More like it's a, technologically at a weird place where it looks a little bit cheap because of the, yeah. the video. Abel Ferrara is a fascinating director and it's really good in that way. And yet there are some elements of it that are a little bit wooden. But the independent movie angle of it also makes it exciting. It's a different kind of hero. It's a different interpretation of it. And we'll get to this as we're comparing all four of them. It's funny how certain elements will start in one or let's say start in the second one will then yeah. continue on. Like like yeah. the, the scream, for example, wasn't in the first. The scream in the Abel Ferrara 93, I have to say my jaw was on the floor the entire time. He managed to take something I knew was coming and yeah. absolutely made it crazy and insane <laughs> and totally over the top. It doesn't have the soul-rending impact yeah. of the 1978 Sutherland scream or any of those screams. And the 78 one does have this 70s, 60s hangover thing going on shot in San Francisco. I think moving it from the suburban setting of the 56 one to a city setting in 1978, you could just feel your mom's Chevy Chevette like running <laughs> out of gas because the country was fucked up and all kinds of shit's going on. Everyone's trying to get in touch with themselves, but we're just lost. That movie captures that and the city alienation that we're all familiar with if we live in a city. Yeah. Being alone amongst multitudes. The great stuff in Philip Kaufman's version in 78 is a lot of the just simplest stuff works best. Yes. There's a lot of just creepy visual stuff. I would even add to that the the chase, the actual chase. Yes. And I think all that's one thing that all four of them will have. I don't know if it's because it was black and white or because it was still a relatively undeveloped area, but something about the, the chase up the hit. Spoiler for 1956. Yes. <laughs> you mean up the stairs? Up the stairs into that hill as they're going towards the coal mine. To see the crowd growing behind mm -hmm. them and to see them gathering pace, I found that particularly effective. Is one of the reasons why this keeps getting made, the simplicity of the fact that you don't really need a tremendous amount of special effects. You really don't need that much because the creepiness is coming from the acting. Yeah. So much has been written attaching political significance to the 56 one and the 78 one, where really none exists in the eyes and the minds of the filmmakers, if right. you hear themselves talk about it. Certainly in the 56 version, it was a B movie studio making a B picture with B actors and a B director at the time, even though Don Siegel is, I think, a legend and a genius. Yeah. And they were not trying to make a red scare, communist baiting treatise about McCarthyism and conformity in American society. They're just making basically a monster pick without a monster. But, you know, do you ask why does it keep getting remade? One of the reasons is because of that simplicity that anything can yeah. be projected on it. Certainly yes. with 56, some people saw it like this is about the insidiousness of communism. Mm -hmm. And I think I've read, yeah, in some ways, I don't know, I started yeah. more of the, like, the knee-jerk anti-communism was more of the threat. Because mm -hmm. it is so simple. Not only there's no monster, but you're just looking around and, and starting to doubt everything that you have seen before. So the 1956 one, had you seen it before? I hadn't. Really impressed with it. I was expecting it to be a B-movie, and it is, but it also has quite Quality. I watched that, then I watched the 78 one again, and then I watched the 93 one, not in the same night, but my expectation was reversed. I thought, well, the 78 one is the good one. This 56 one is going to be the sort of janky source material one that was remade in 78 and is better. No, if you love the 78 one, if your childhood was haunted by the 78 one, I encourage you to go back and watch the 56 one because it's so different, but mm -hmm. it's so good. It's so efficient and well-made. And Don Siegel, who made Escape from Alcohol, 
Alcatraz, Charlie Varick, the first Dirty Harry movie, just working director. Like we always talk about working actor. This guy's a working director of his time. I've been reading his book. He's got a really funny book that unlike many other books by directors is so short and succinct about every movie. It's like every movie just gets like two or three pages. Uh Uh-huh. He is not one to go into or up his own ass about what he was thinking or doing. And Don Siegel felt that they ruined his movie by tacking on the framing device. Right. Which is crazy guy is found on the street ranting and raving, is brought into a hospital, doctor's examining him, and he's telling the doctor this whole crazy story. And at the end of the 1956, spoiler alert, just as he's about to get dragged off because he's obviously ranting and raving in a lunatic, and he's proven right. I think they're like, oh, there was a big truck crash on the highway. I never saw these things. Yeah, what were they, they like? See the pods. Seed all- pods. And then he's like, get me the FBI. We'll handle this. And then they pan into Kevin McCarthy, who's got this relieved look on his face. And they hated that because the original ending was going to be so much better. Well, it departs from the book because you said you haven't finished the no, book. No, I'm finished. I, I read the description of the book, and the, the description says that the ending of the book, that the plants, the spores, yes. decide to leave Earth. They only have a five year lifespan in the book, and I think they realize they don't have enough time. Humans are going to be too difficult to conquer. Okay. Well, one way or the other, they leave. Yes. It's a <laughs> crisis averted by, <laughs> by virtue of of humanity's, I don't know if it's staying power, prevarication, laziness. Yeah. Uh, so to keep doing nothing, people. But the 56 movie version was originally going to end much the way the 78 version ends, which is mm-hmm. on a uncertain note. It's in the movie in a sense, because just before the doctor is pulled into the hospital after being found ranting and raving on the highway, and I think the original ending in the 56 version was going to be him turning to camera and saying, they're coming and you're next. And that was going to go to black. And that was a great ending. That would have been great. Of course, the studio didn't think that people would understand what was going on, so they insisted not only on a framing device, which was the thing we just described, but also that little voiceover that happens throughout the 56 version. I don't really mind that because that's kind of in keeping with the noir vibe. Also, I think a lot of horror, that's a big convention of somebody like, I know you think yes. I'm crazy, but listen to me. And they describe the story. Yes. Because I actually liked the framing device, except yes, it would have been great if the end, they were like, okay, crazy guy. And then they just locked him away in a padded cell. Let's play a clip from the 1956 version. Well, what do you make of it? Who is he? I have no idea. It's face, Miles. It's vague. It's like the first impression that's stamped on a coin. It isn't finished. You're right. There's all the features, but no details, no character, no lines. It's no dead man. Have you got an ink pad around the house? Should be one of the desk one. I want to take the corpse's fingerprints. Of course it's a dead man. What else could it be? I don't know, but I've got a feeling that, well, this sounds crazy, but if I should do an autopsy, I think I'd find every organ in perfect condition. That Kevin McCarthy, I mean, it, he's one. Of, he's a guy who elevates the B-movie to something a little else, I you, think. I had the same reaction as you. When I started the 56, I was like, okay, it's just going to be kind of corny and hokey. But this is something that often happens when I go into a classic movie. It's so much more modern and so much more modulated and so much better acted and yes. better done than you expect because yeah. it's it's so easy to think that the past, nobody was as sophisticated as we are now. In fact, they're pros. And it's so stripped down and it moves so quickly. And yet he and Dana Winter- She's are, great are able to convey so much so quickly. She's beautiful. She apparently has never watched it because she felt she was not good in it. Well, she how passed she away know? in She's never seen it. 
Well, <laughs> true. She, I thought also, she was great. I thought I, she was fantastic. She, she, I think what she thought was that she wasn't yet sophisticated enough an actor to bring more to her role than was there on the page. I don't agree. I thought one of the most winning elements of the 56 version is the minute they find each other again and they both play recently divorced 20-somethings, I guess, in the construct of the movie. Yeah. He's a full doctor at 28 in a small town in California. She has been away in England, which was added simply to try and cover for the English accent that she had. Uh-huh as a real person brought up in Britain and South Africa. But the minute they're on screen together, they have cracklingly good chemistry. Yeah. Really funny one-liners. And I think you believe them. There's something, you know, and I'm surprised to hear that they had added that element of her being away in England because there was something about the, because I guess the implication is that they knew each other and maybe even dated before she went and got married. Now they're both divorced. And the awkwardness of could this Mm -hmm. happen in the future, the tenderness of that relationship that they're both using and masking by using the humor and banter. And they're sort of, checking each other out in a way that they ultimately would have to do once there was this question of, is somebody a pod person or not? The great thing about Don Siegel's direction, I mean, all of the shots here are really beautifully composed, but they're also all in service to telling the story. And it's really Don Siegel's direction and lighting and shadows that you can see used in every subsequent remake of the film. Mm -hmm. Directors are always paying homage to the shadow nature of what Don Siegel was doing by including shots like that. I think the 78 with the shadows and the angles Mm -hmm. takes it even further to the point that this became a classic of the paranoia, I guess, trend of the mid 70s. And I think the exaggerated shadows and the Dutch angles and it was beautifully lit and shot. It had a sort of griminess. It is such an interesting contrast between the clean storytelling of the 56 as well as the clean black and white versus the very, because, you know, I love that 78 version, but it's a little bit more jangly. It's less streamlined than the 56, which, you know, to me seems parallel to the way that the society has changed. And it really um, makes the alienation of an urban center both beautiful and still frightening. A good segue into the 78 version is a clip, and this features Kevin McCarthy running into traffic and surprising our two protagonists on the tail end of a joke that we never get to hear, which I think is a funny little element. Of course, the internet ruins everything. You can look up what the joke was. Rommel tells the troops, I have good news and bad news. The bad news is... Uh, we're out of food. We're out of food. The good news is that we have a lot of camel poop or something. <laughs> the, the bad news is we're out of food except for camel poop. The good news is there's plenty of it. Hmm. Speaking of Ishtar. <laughs> already it's the internet is I, a buzz. I will say, I will say I'm taking heat. What? For not liking Ishtar already. And you are being praised as a guy who gets it. I've had several people reach out to me. (laughs) Super listener Ben in Los Angeles texted me to say, I'm 10 minutes in and I'm so angry at you. Hashtag (laughs) Team Chris. (laughs) Look, the guy lives in Los Angeles, so he must know about movies. So bad. (laughs) Anyway, hopefully that will be over by the time you're hearing this. Or it'll be like our most downloaded episode ever, and I'll have to watch the damn thing again, or for the first time, really. Right. Don't kid yourselves or the (laughs) listeners. (laughs) Uh, Here's a nice little bit of continuity between the first two body snatchers. Did I ever tell you the one about the English camel corps? Did I? Mm -mm. They're trapped in the desert, in the Sahara Desert. They've been surrounded by Rommel for 40 days, and they've run out of food. And uh, the captain comes and makes an announcement to the men. And he says, men, I have some good news for you and some bad news for you. 
And one of the men says... Oh, wait, you have told me this one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Can I tell it to you again? What's so great about that scene is, like we said before, the subtle introduction of what's going on, the way the camera is handheld in the car shooting out of the broken windshield, that shot, Kevin MacArthur's just been hit by a car, there's a crowd gathered, and no one has any emotion on their face. Yeah. Could be a crowd. At this point, you don't know. Funny enough, one, the lines that jumped out at me is when he says, he must have done something, yes. and the police will help. That police will help line is so good. We're about to have a breakdown of societal trust. Yeah. And Sutherland's both excuse for not getting out of the car and helping himself, saying, oh, oh, the police will help. Yeah. It also recalls the famous Kitty Genovese story mm, yes. in Queens of a woman who was stabbed and her neighbors sort of watched it happen and she ended up dying because nobody called the police. And over time, you know, people interpret it differently, mm. whether it's that nobody cared because they're in a city and mm -hmm. cities are so dehumanizing, or the more modern interpretation is that everybody thought that somebody else would do it, Yeah, which actually leads, you know, so this morning I was doing interviews for our show at a mm -hmm. studio in Chelsea. And while sitting out and waiting before it started, I heard somebody yelling, help, help me, please. Really? Out on the streets. So there's another guy there and we hear somebody yelling, help me, help me, please. And we both kind of look at each other, unsure what to do. <laughs> we look out the window to see on 27th Street, you yeah. know, not an untrafficked part of right. town. It's 930, so it's still rush hour. There are plenty of people around. And there's scaffolding. And so we can't really see mm -hmm. what would be happening on the Thank street. You. We sort of shared a thing of looking at each other like, should we, should we run out there? Do something? I can't see what's going on. Welcome Maybe to 2019. The, you know, well, welcome to 2019. Oh, we're off to 1956. Welcome to 19. So what happened? You don't even know what happened. No, the, the, stopped screaming. And that was it. And so we never knew. Seeing this now made me think living in a society, there has to be a certain amount of trust. Yeah. And which is, a, and like this story and why you can read everything into it, that trust is a double-edged sword. Right. And I don't know, it really was unsure. Like, should I go down to the street? What would I be able yeah. to do? Shout out to The Witness 2015 documentary about Kitty Genovese. Yeah. It is a brilliant documentary with a really weird and haunting and unnerving conclusion. Okay, so 78, the great soundtrack. I mean, even though it's sort of dated now with these electronic pulsing sounds, but it's creepy and yeah. it's dirty. It feels unclean. I actually don't think Philip Kaufman is the right director for this in a way. And that's, I think, what gives some of what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But when you think about other, like, he's the guy that should have directed the right stuff. Mm -hmm. And he did a great job with something I was like say, that. I was so surprised to see this in comparison to the rest of his filmography. It stands alone, right? Philip Kaufman, Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, uh, Jeff Goldblum, who I completely forgot was in this. Uh-huh. Um, 
who else of note? Leonard Nimoy, of course. Oh, of course. Uh, Leonard Nimoy (laughs) trying his best to break out of the typecasting of Spock, but playing a doctor in a science fiction film. I don't know. I think he could have gone further. I was watching him. I was thinking there's plenty of examples of people who have 50 year careers, not because they are, quote unquote, good actors. He's not capable of delivering a wide variety of range. That's not why we love him. I mean, he is perfect as Spock. Yeah. Like, he could be none more perfect. No one else is, I mean, you just, is there another role that no one else could ever do? Yeah. In this movie, he's, like, his limitations as an actor are are there, starkly apparent. But it somehow doesn't matter. He's got this mahogany voice of, like, six million yeah. Marlboro cigarettes. His clothes are fantastic. He's wearing that weird leather hand patch. I couldn't believe, first of all, I couldn't believe how easy that was to find. I thought I'd be like, I'm probably the only person who's ever Again, that's this. part of the ruination of the internet, in a way. I mean, yeah. you're both glad to know it, but you're also kind of like, ah. Oh. I wish it was just, an un- like, an unsolved, no, that's Robert Stack, Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> What was Nimoy? In search of. In search of, why is he wearing a leather thing on the back of his hand? In search of the leather strap? What would you- I was like, is he an archer? (laughs) Did I miss that? I thought thought he'd say, well, listen, I gotta go. I'm gonna be shooting with Princess Margaret down at the archery range. (laughs) Well, tell the listeners what what the hell it is. Leonard Nimoy is a variegated artist who is a photographer and writer, director- Poet. Poet. That being singer, said, singer. as an actor, he wanted to get away from, from Spock. And he's like, what can I do to sort of like just give this guy a little judge? And he remembered a friend of his who had worn a similar leather mm-hmm. thing on his hand to cover a burn. Looking at it now, it feels of a part of like a weird 70s fashion thing that maybe yeah. we sort of half vaguely remember. But it also does say, and I think he may have said himself, it shows you that he's covering something up. Yes. Which, of course, he's a pod person. Yeah. Spoiler for 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yes. And a few other people in the cast uh, that I wanted to, to mention. Art Hindle, who plays Jeff. Yes. Her uh, Brooke Adams <laughs> boyfriend, who I wanted to mention because he is in one of my favorite yes. horror movies, The Brood, one of David Cronenberg's he's, early he, films. He was shouted out a bunch by a bunch of horror geeks once once word got out that we were watching this movie. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I mean, he's actually there was actually something else. That he was in. What else was he in? Oh, let's see. Someone else was like, oh, you mean the guy from... <laughs> from... It wasn't The Brood. It was something else he's even more famous for. Porky's? I mean, he was in no, Porky's. He was Porky's. in Black Christmas. Another horror movie. Another classic. Porky's? <laughs> Sorry, it was Porky's 2. That's the... The next day. <laughs> the most horror... Maybe, no, you know what? Maybe it is the brood. When he changes, I didn't notice a difference because we first see him like listening to headphones. She comes and tries to cuddle with him and he's sort of not that into it. Yeah. And then he gets pod personed and all he does is put on a suit. Yeah, he's not really that different. I love Veronica Cartwright oh, that, in yes. this movie and in every movie that she's ever been in. She's also continues to be a working actor. Alien, Lambert and Alien, number one. Yes. Okay. She plays Betty Grissom in The Right Stuff, Gus Grissom's wife. Oh, She's okay. the one who has the famous line like, no Jackie? Because <laughs> Gus Grissom screws the pooch and she doesn't get to meet Jackie Kennedy. She's just one of those reliable pros. She's and fantastic. particularly with this role, I mean, spoiler for the very end, the fact that she is the one that survives mm-hmm. the longest yes. to be the one who is betrayed, especially because she does seem a little bit uh, hippy-dippy, a little bit... Yeah. Um, She's she not has who, some crazy she's not who you theories. telegraph as a survivor. And yet she is. And here's another thing about the 2007 version. In the same way that Kevin McCarthy cameos in this, Veronica Cartwright, 
cameos oh. in 2007. So for the 2007 one, Nicole Kidman plays the doctor part, okay. and she's a psychiatrist. Okay, so that's our twist. And the first inkling she gets of it is when Veronica Cartwright is saying, oh. my husband's not my husband. Okay. Now, I think Nicole Kidman would actually be good at that kind of thing intuiting that something's going on here. The problems have nothing to do with yeah. Nicole Kidman. The problems have to do with literally everything else, <laughs> including like the first time you do meet a pod person. Like, have you ever heard of people making fun of Ted Cruz? Like he's uh-huh. a, an wooden. alien trying yeah. to pretend he's like, hello, human Hello, person. human. Yeah, that's literally <laughs> what the guy who plays uh, Veronica Cruz, he's like, Hello, doc. Like, I am looking for my wife person. But Veronica Carway was great. Brooke Adams also still around and still working. And it's funny because we just were watching something with Deborah Winger. Yeah. I also always confuse Brooke Adams with the woman who was in uh, the movie with Christopher Walken (laughs) that isn't Brooke Adams. Oh, boy. Uh, The Dead Zone. Oh. Isn't that Brooke Adams? (laughs) Mm, I don't think so. This is, I, th- I think you're doing what I always do. I think you think it's Brooke Adams, but it's somebody yeah. else. I sometimes would confuse her maybe with it's Karen her Allen. Karen Allen. It's Karen Allen in the dead zone. It is? Okay. I think. Mm. Let's no, look it up. Sorry to. Oh, is it Brooke Adams? I don't know how to read <laughs> this minute. to you. Hold on. Hold on one second. This isn't like when I confused Martin Sheen sorry, and Charlie Brainstorm. Sheen. Brainstorm. Ah, because Brooke Adams is in dead zone. Sorry, oh, not I've that can- one either. Brainstorm is Natalie Wood and Louise Fletcher. Brainstorm's a great movie. Really? Yes. Directed by Douglas Trumbull of 2001 fame. What's the one I'm thinking of? Well, I'm going to have to reverse. You know how they like pick, take a radio apart in order to learn how to put it back together? Yeah. I'm going to have to do that by going to... Karen Allen. Karen Allen. Hey, see, you already got there before I did. How'd you do it? <laughs> okay, so it is Brooke Adams in The Dead Zone. Yes. So, oh, 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 I know what it is. I got there. Don't ruin it for okay. me. Oh, you know I, what it yeah, is? Yeah. It's that Donald Sutherland is in Animal House, and I thought, oh, Brooke Adams is the girlfriend of Otter in Animal House, who's having an affair with her teacher, yes. played by Donald Sutherland. But in fact, it's, it's Karen Allen. Yes. That's what I was thinking of. Is it? Yes. It's Karen Allen. Don't even look, yeah. I don't, I don't yeah, even have yeah, to look yeah, it up. You're right, you're right. I don't even have to look it up because I know it like the back of my hand covered by leather as if I were a Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> anyway, Brooke Adams. Brooke Adams, who's also in my, if we're giving shout outs, she's in Days of Heaven, which is, is one of, of the heaven. most amazing movies ever made. Mm. I love that movie so much. And that was like. It's a great movie. If Terrence you ever wonder when I became such an insufferable artsy fartsy type. It that was would do it. Catching that. Well, it's a brilliant movie. Yeah. I mean, it's if you like light, yeah, go I check mean, that movie gorgeous. out. And she is perfectly cast here as this mid-70s adrift person. I read a few things online. Some people are kind of critical of Sutherland in this movie, which I never even stopped down to think about criticizing him in the movie. I do see what they're saying. He is a little vague and kind of unfocused as a character. Kind of don't really know like, well, who is this guy? Is he in love with her? Is he just a friend? The health inspector thing is so bizarre as a setup. Like that introduction of him. (laughs) So weird. Looking into a huge pot and be like, I see what could either be a caper or a rat turd. It's a rat turd. It's a secret, Mr. Burnett. You don't have any secrets from the Department of Health, Henri. A good young burgundy, brown stock, time, parsley, just a sprig, and capers, a, a, a fresh bay leaf, and garlic. That's all. Oui, yes. What is that? A caper. No. Do you 
presume to tell us what is in this stock? It's a rat turd. A what? A rat turd. A caper. A rat turd. A caper. If it's a caper, eat it. That's a great scene. I remember that from my childhood like it was yesterday. I don't know why. But I think because it's impossible. It's so, it's so weird. For him to have seen it. Uh, <laughs> in a bubbling cauldron. Exactly. But you know, I'll tell you, again, and this is, I think, what I think makes it feel like a, indicative of the 70s. He, as a character, is a little bit adrift. He has the power in the sense that he is her boss. Yeah. He is obviously dedicated to his public service job. You're very dedicated. Like, yeah, but on the other hand, he's- Dude, you're just in the health department. You're a health, yeah, Nobody exactly. cares. And the health <laughs> department building is, this is like an art deco palace yeah. that they're housing. And I guess maybe that's just San Francisco all yeah, over. Yeah, man, we all live there. Uh, Everyone lived large back then. But it does seem, yeah, he does seem strange. And I do, at one point I was wondering like, I know they're running and I know they're getting away from the pod people, but on the other hand, why, where, where are they running to? Where are they yeah. going? It's atmospherics, I guess. Yes. You know, and that's the thing. Here's a scene of most of our protagonists together. Where, Matthew? That's leaves in a pot. It was there, David. I swear to God it was there. Officer, there was a body in there. It was a duplicate of Elizabeth Driscoll and it's been taken Elizabeth away. Elizabeth Driscoll is a missing woman. No, no, she's not missing. Where what is she? She's okay. She's a Matthew. Don't tell him where oh, she is. There's no missing body. No, that's right. There is a no, missing is body, no body, and he's taken it away. No, he took Elizabeth. You took Elizabeth Driscoll away. Yeah, yes, you, you broke it. No, I had to because she was not safe. So then you took Elizabeth Driscoll out of here. No, no, I didn't. No, I took her from there. Her other body was in here. Right, that's right, what I've been trying to explain. No, please there stop. Matthew, that's enough. Please stop. Lieutenant, my name is Dr. David Kibner. Ah, the psychiatrist. That's right. My wife reads your books. It's changed her life. Good, I'm glad. Look, this sounds terribly complicated. David, but my friend has had some difficult emotional experiences during the last couple of days. But I think this is something that we could work out amongst ourselves. All right, I'll leave this part of it with you. I appreciate it. It's enough. You can't accomplish anything here. No, I gotta get outside. Stop. Stop. I think you might want to consider filing an unlawful entry against Mr. Benelli. No, I'll take Dr. Kidner's word that Elizabeth is all right. It's a great scene. Um, contrary to what I just said, actually, that, that is such a well-directed scene. Yeah. That, that when they jump outside and shoot through the window back in to give you that voyeuristic element. Did you read the thing about how they were trying to shoot this scene and Philip Kaufman, the director, brought everyone up into the room and they suddenly realized like the room was so small. They had set up this day around getting this scene and it's got Nimoy, Jeff Goldblum, the boyfriend, everyone. It's like four cops. And they're like, it'll take us like two days to shoot this a conventional yeah. manner. And the cinematographer said, let me just do it handheld. And he kind of stood in the middle of the room and they just did the scene in real time. And he kind of flowed and moved and went in and out to kind of get everyone. And it gives it more of this 70s feeling I was of detachment say, and sort of what's going like a, on. A post Robert Altman film with yeah. everybody speaking over <laughs> each other. The bits of information that you need do come up. But you don't need to be focusing on each line in the same way that in the 56 version. I think it works fantastic. Michael Chapman is the cinematographer. He shot a little movie you might have heard of called Raging Bull. Which? Or Taxi Driver. Well, not only was Michael Chapman the cinematographer on this, he was a camera operator on Jaws, our film from last week. That's where I saw him. I was like, I've just seen this guy in something, but everything blends together now. Just the camera operator. Not yes, the DP. Not the DP. Yeah. But yeah, three short years. Yeah. And then, and he's got an amazing he career. Does. Crazy. Full casting crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind. 
a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick, co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76, and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy, delivered daily. What else on the Body Snatchers? Uh, so we Brooke Adams is great. Nimoy is bizarre. Sutherland is great. Um, One thing about Sutherland is when you were saying that people sometimes give him a hard time for this role, I don't know, to me, he's such a recognizable presence that it's almost hard to yes. notice any acting going on. But when somebody was saying that for this, he wore the same hairdo he did in Don't Look Now, that they had to put his hair in curlers and had that did. curly hair. That ruined it for me. I wish oh, I never it? heard that. <laughs> I guess I, I thought it was that. naturally curly. I, I can't unsee the curlers now. <laughs> I just thought that was his hair. <laughs> That's what I thought too. Just goes to show you, if you want to enjoy the movies, don't start a movie podcast. You're yes, going right. to learn all kinds of things that are going to break your heart. Like Donald, all you listeners, think of Donald Sutherland having his hair done in curlers every morning before going to work. All you listeners, just think of the amount of suffering that we are going through. That's true. For you. Yes. Okay. Jeff Goldblum in this movie. <laughs> is as he frequently is. And I think this is why he became a thing. He's in his own little world. Like there's there's what's going on in the movie. And then there's what's going on in the movie that Jeff Goldblum is in, yeah. which happens to be in the same shot as the movie everyone else is in. <laughs> right? Is that a fair same shot, different film. I wanted to play a funny clip of him because <laughs> Jeff Goldblum is such a unique and weird presence. Some casting director somewhere is, is the person who first said like, you know, it's just something about him. Much in the same way that Sutherland is like such a 70s kind of guy. Like yeah. he's not masculine, mm-hmm. right? He's woke. Talk yeah. about the need to stay woke. <laughs> Took Chris three seconds to yeah. get that joke. You I'm going to edit it out. You I'm watched four separate. Body Snatcher movies and you didn't get instantaneously a joke about not going to sleep. Well, you know, I did watch three of them back to back to back, <laughs> like in one day. You did? It was That's dangerous. dangerous. Yes, yes. I would not recommend Oof. it. If I had done the 93 one instead of the 2007 that okay. one that day, I would have been okay. If you want to do a triple feature, I definitely would say 56, 78, 93. That's a worthy yeah. triple feature. If you get the flu or something, yeah. you need to kill Listen, maybe six I'll get into seven a hours. accident, break a leg. <laughs> um, anyway, here's a little gold bloom. Matt, Matt, thank God you're finally here. These people are driving me nuts. Are we going to have dinner later? No, no, I can't. Do you know where there's a telephone? There's a telephone right around the corner. Elizabeth Driscoll, Jack, this is the Elizabeth... The book is awful. Kibner's book is awful. His ideas are garbage. Kibner's ideas are pure garbage. How can you say that about a man like Kibner? I'm not saying it about a man like Kibner. I'm saying it about Kibner. He dashes one of these things off every six months. Takes me six months to write one line sometimes. Why? Because I pick each word individually, that's why. What's so hard about that? I wasn't even talking to you, was I? On the corner of uh, Leavenworth and uh, Turk? Turk. Yes. What's so hard about that? What's so hard about that? Uh, you must have a report on it because there was so a, a motorcycle that. officer there and there was an ambulance on the way. They follow me. They don't understand what I'm saying. Well, ignore them. You don't have to prove yourself to anybody. Well, that's easy for you to say. They don't no, jump all over you. Of course I saw it. No, the man, the man was running poison. down the street. It's romantic, he was being chased by people. He landed on my car. He went off my car and then he was hit by the other Secondly, I am talking to the police. No, he was lying bleeding on the road. What seems to be the trouble, officer? Hello. Don't yeah. ever give your name to cops. What do you want to do? Get on their master list? Leavenworth and Turk. <laughs> I mean, he's just doing his own thing. Yeah. He's not listening to anybody, so it doesn't matter. That's one non-listener. I recognize <laughs> I recognize my people. Well, listen, he is a poet. 
in San Francisco in True. 1978. A little Furlingetti going on. insufferable could there possibly be? He also, this movie, in the same way that in Monkey Shines, uh, Jason Begay <laughs> featured Moviedom's worst beard. I'm going to say that Jeff Goldblum has Moviedom's least believable nosebleed <laughs> in this movie. I still don't know whether that's supposed to be that he tucked some tissue, tissue paper. Yeah. Is that what that is? Dried tissue paper? Yeah. He's having a nosebleed because... Because, I guess, 1978, San Francisco. Right. <laughs> oh. A little too much Bolivian I mean, marching powder, maybe? Possibly. Fueling I mean, those listen, late night he, poetry sessions. He runs a Turkish bathhouse. It's very <laughs> humid in there. These are the things that stayed with me and horrified me my entire life. The gloppy mud bath, I don't know why. Uh, the most horrifying thing in the movie. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. Let's not even mention it right now, because I don't want to get freaked out. There's that, which is insane. And which we're not sick, mentioning. Which I'm not talking about the dog! Jesus Christ! Oh, and the last shot with those dead trees behind Sutherland. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Ever seen how creepy that is? You know, what that kind of trees is some weird Dr. Seuss nightmare psychotronic tree thing. I don't know what kind of trees those are, man, but there are some fucked up trees. You don't think that's just autumn in <laughs> San Francisco? <laughs> I don't know what it is, man, but it, it lends that scene so much just creepiness. Creepy. Yeah. It's creepy. The sense of creepy portent, which I think we all felt in 1978. Things were going to hell in a handbasket. Gas lines. Well, and cities were becoming, I guess, more, you know, they were- Impersonal? Crumbling. Impersonal as they Bubbling. got bigger, but they were also crumbling. Oh, crumbling. Crumbling. Oh, you mean like infrastructure, infrastructure problems. Yeah. yeah. Well, good thing infrastructure week <laughs> cleared that up now. We got Look, that every week us. is going to be infrastructure week until the infrastructure is in better shape. <laughs> Another little bit of continuity I want to just play is Don Siegel, the director of the 1956 version, also appears in the 78 version yes. as a cab driver in a very creepy scene. Where to? The airport. Six ten proceeding south to airport, carrying two passengers, type H, repeat type H. Some night, eh? Yeah. Where exactly are you heading? I said, the airport. No, I mean, which airline? United. Got business attitude? No, we're not leaving. I'm meeting someone coming in from Boston. What's going on? Oh, nothing. What's great about that scene is just when they get in the cab, there's that woman standing stock still against the strip club. And by this point in the movie, we're in just deep, there's just this element of distrust. And also in the soundtrack, there's a lot of nature sounds in the beginning, the San Francisco wildlife and plants and glistening raindrops. And then the soundtrack subtly shifts throughout the course of the movie to really just be the sounds of industrialized Urban cities, like, yeah. like a garbage trucks picking up satchels of your remains, although we don't know that at the time. Right. The thrumming sound that you heard there of the two motorcycle cops passing the cab in the tunnel. It's just so ominous. It's the yeah. use of that police state imagery, motorcycle jacketed police officers riding in tandem at a high rate of speed. These are all the things that scared the shit out of me in the yeah. 70s. I don't know. I was just like a terrified child clutching my stuffed rabbit. Shout out Flopsy Brown.
Uh, R.I.P. Still with us? Uh, somewhere. Somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Thanks for keeping me company, kid. Now get in this box. <laughs> and I'll see you. I mean, I'm I'm just saying. I hope that he's somewhere. Oh. I don't. I don't have him. I don't think. I don't want to think of him gone. No, no, I'm sure he's at a farm upstate. I'm sure you're probably the kind of kid. You never even had a little animal that you clung to, did you? Nope. Nope. Just a little grown man lying in his bed. (laughs) (laughs) Never cried. Able to cut his food from age three. Able to. Have to. Otherwise, you're going to eat. You can get a sense of Don Siegel's dry wit, even just in yeah. there, which is much remarked upon in the book that I'm reading, his own book. He remarks about it himself. Well, huh? other people are referenced in the book talking to him and about him, yeah. and he's extremely dry and very funny, and you get a little sense of that. Okay, I guess it's time we have to do the dog. I mean, I think of all things ever in movies, I'm not sure anything else stayed with me the way this continues to. Right. Sometimes you read about stuff and it takes some of the power or some of the magic away, like envisioning Donald Sutherland sitting under a 1960s hair dryer with curlers kind of like bums me out a little bit. Learning how they did this doesn't change at all the horrifying nature of the shot. And yeah. however many times I watch it, it will still contain an eerie supernatural power. It's just one of those things. It's the clip of the homeless banjo playing hobo merged with his dog. Watching it now, it's comical because the banjo music is there to tell you what's going on. <laughs> also, interesting, banjo played by Jerry, Jerry Garcia. Garcia. Amazing. Um, come to find out, it's a practical effect. Yes. It's not CGI. Which I think is part of what makes it stay with you because you can see it's that makes it that much more grotesque because there's physically something on that dog's face. So I actually went to my usual special effects go-to person, my friend Jason Bakudis. I said... I, I said, you know, the dog in Body Snatchers, like apparently it was a mask they put on a real dog and there's really no effect going on. Yeah. And they just got lucky and that they put some peanut butter on the lips of the mask and they got lucky that the dog licked the peanut butter and it gives it that insane humanity. But when you look at it, it does look like maybe it's tracked a little as the dog comes up. So I asked Jason if he thought it was like a printed frame, perhaps, that they were then creating that. Uh He said he didn't think so, but he would ask uh, a friend of his who's a legendary kind of Hollywood special effects guy, Al Mags. And Al said, no, I I think it's a full, I don't think that they're they're using frames to get the dog's face to come up to the close-up. I think it's just the way that shot is lit. Yeah. There are some like striations of light going across and it creates almost a little bit of a stutter effect as the dog approaches the camera. So to hear everyone involved in the making of the movie, they just had this mask made that they put on the dog's head and they called the dog over and he happened to run up and lick his lips in time in a perfect shot that freaked the hell out of everybody for 50 years. Yeah. Or however long it's been 78 to now. Well, I'm sure in 10 years, it'll still be freaking people out. And this just works because it is such a grotesque image. And for those of you who haven't seen it, there's a homeless banjo player and his dog who are asleep next to a pod, which is supposed to be replicating the man, but Donald Sutherland accidentally kicks it and damages it so that it makes- It assimilates the man and the dog. Similar to The Fly, which Jeff Bloom was in. Yes. Great movie. Great movie. God, if you had a 1970s, early 80s childhood- You are as haunted by that scene as I am. 
Did they try to do that shot in the 2007? I mean, I guess in all of them, there has to be that beat where something happens that freaks somebody out. And so their emotion gets shown. But that is easily the best one. I think in the 93 one, Gabriel Arnoir's character befriends Arlie Emery's daughter. Correct. Played by Christina Lee. Uh, who was fantastic. Shout out Bev Niner. Beverly Hills 90210? She was Jason Priestley's girlfriend in Bev Niner. No kidding. I think so. Well, she was great. And there's one point where you see her and there's a little bit of tension because you're unsure mm-hmm. if she had been assimilated yes. or not. And she says something about the brother. They're, they're trying yes. to search for her little brother. I think that is meant That's to be the sort point. of- You're right. You're right. She says, I saw Danny or whatever, and she can't help herself but express human emotion in the same way that Brooke Adams is given away because the fucking dog is so horrifying that yeah. she screams. And in the 56, one. Like what sets off Dana Winter in the 56 one? I can't remember what it is in the 56 one. The ending scene of the movie is one of those ending scenes where I think in the middle of the 78 body snatchers, it's getting a little baggy. You have this incredible screen presence in Jeff Goldblum and he just kind of goes away, yeah. you know, and Nimoy too. You don't want to roll where Leonard Nimoy has to then become unemotional. Like <laughs> the whole point of having him here is like, I don't want to do Spock, but I'm going to then become even not- more like... Spock always had heart and emotion going on. I mean, yeah. he's half human. So as much as he wanted to be a logician, you always felt the beating heart of Spock. This is just like, it's all wood. But this, there's supposed <laughs> to be some tension that like, is it like, this is a twist. Is he or isn't he? There's no he question. Was. There's, no, there's no question. No question from the beginning that he was the first turned. And um, I guess part of it is because of his like, the popular psychiatrist self-help guru yes, element of it. Yes. Is so, I don't think there's ever been a time that, that a character <laughs> like that has not been either evil or a hypocrite or yes. an alien or something like that. You just know. You know. You know that that, that guy's not going to be uh, yeah. on the right side. The ending sequence is just brilliant, both in the framing. It's shot yeah. a little bit lower so that both the Capitol building of San Francisco, Donald Sutherland is in front of these bizarre trees that look like Thneeds from a nightmarish kind of like Art Spiegelman meets Dr. Seuss <laughs> land. And this is the famous scene between him and what's her name, Chris? Veronica Cartwright. Thank you. God, what must it be like to have recall? It's great. (laughs) Matthew? Matthew? I mean, that fucked up version of Amazing Grace. Yeah. The grayness of the day, the birds flying back and forth. Whatever those goddamn trees are, haunt my nightmares, Chris, forever. They look so sickly and evil and scary. I was going to look it up, but no, don't even look it up. Is bad. I don't want to know. The mystery is even better. And then that push into Sutherland, and he just gives a brilliant eye flare halfway through his scream. God, that'll send you home with fucking nightmares forever. Yeah. Enjoy, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Good night, folks. <laughs> Then in the Abel Ferrara version, let's go scream for scream. I mean, I think the scream in the 78 one is just, is just, uh, is the scream. Like, I don't think it's been improved upon. I don't know what they did in Nicole Kidman version. They didn't really have it. What? What you do have at one point, spoiler for 2007's The Invasion, is Jeremy Northam does vomit slash cough on Nicole Kidman to try to infect her Uh, with the- Oh, is that how it 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 gets passed? It's more like a sex thing, like like we're all going to die of having sex. 
I don't, I don't know. What's crappy about it is it takes place in Washington, D.C. She's a psychologist. It is much more about her trying to protect her son. There's a background theme of the difference between humanity and animals. You know, when pushed into the, when will humanity become less mm -hmm. violent or something like that? Something which is so nonspecific, yeah. whereas with it, it, it sort of loses the conformity thing. And it is more just about, at one point, she, spoiler for this crappy movie, she shoots uh, Daniel Craig because he's- Daniel Craig's in it too? Oh, yeah. She, oh. He's the love interest. Oh. Jeremy Northam's the ex-husband. Oh, okay. Daniel Craig, she's traded up, mm, frankly. I would think so. Um, but it, she shoots, and so I think the thing is like the violence to protect her child. Oh, the Does she shoot Daniel Craig because she knows he's a pod person? Yeah. Okay, so- In uh, order to get away. Into 93 Abel Ferrara, where Gabriel- yes. Anwar shoots Terry Kinney, her own father, and throws her toddler brother off a helicopter. Exactly. Well, I was like, that is what I was going to say. With the endings, each of her is introducing something new. First, that throwing the toddler so brother good. off, you got to have real stones wow. to make a kid evil. And that they do bring into the 2007 one. There's this other little kid, like a friend uh -huh. of her son's, who gets assimilated and at some point is like, you know, take her away, you know, just sort yeah. of like ordering around. And then at one point she has to like break away and she does like throw him and he hits his head against the bed. And if it, if the movie really had any um, mm. spine, that kid would be dead. But instead <laughs> in the sort of happy ending, she's now adopted him. So in the 93 Abel Farrar version, we have professional 90s man weenie Terry Kinney. <laughs> As divorced dad guy. With hair. I With hair, hair and a lot of really baggy clothing. Yeah. Well, it was, listen, it was 93. It was the, he's so, so, so the early 90s. And the great Meg Tilly. So in this construct, we have a divorced dad with his new wife, who's the mother of the youngest son, but not the mother of Gabrielle Anwar's character, who I think at the time of the movie was 21 years old, but I think she sort of played like an underage high school she girl. She played like 15. Yeah. Abel Farrar shows, I would say, remarkable restraint in not over-sexualizing her yes. in a way that you might expect him to do based on some of his other movies. Or at least it didn't make it into the final cut, let me say. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what was filmed. But anyway, you have that. And this is the scene where they realize, yes, bring him in. Bring Paul in. Uh, speaking, hey! of, speaking of the pod person. We're ready for uh, you. We're joined by our colleague, Paul Kalp, hey ladies guys. and gentlemen. Hi. Can you hear Paul, Chris? Uh, yeah, good enough. Okay, yeah, that's about well. <laughs> Paul, we're talking about Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, my God. All three versions. You get a little oh, closer. Okay. So than I only have... Uh, have you seen the 1978 Donald Sutherland version? That's the Sutherland version is the one I Actually, I you know, know I can't... Try again? Check it out. Word. Ah, oh. there's got to be a happy medium. <laughs> Check it out, word up. Yeah. Man. Testing one, two, three, Perfect. four. All right. Were you horrified by the 1978 I version? I was horrified by it. I, it's still definitely burned in my memory because I saw it as a young kid. I guess yeah. I must have been 10 years old, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what what scene haunted you the most? Well, the dog with the guy's face, <laughs> <laughs> who is like licking yes. his lips. We just covered that, and of course, yes. the ending is apocalyptic. It's like, yeah. it's it's horrifying. It is horrifying. A truly downer Bleak. ending. Yeah. Have Bleak. you ever seen the 1956 version? I think I saw bits and pieces of yeah. it. How about the 1993 Abel Ferrara version? No. Well, you're about to watch the, his version of the iconic scream <laughs> moment. Up there? Okay. Yes, oh, up cool. there on the screen. No, you don't understand. We've got to go. Go where? No, we got to go. What the hell are you talking about? Steve, this is important. Go where? That's right. Go where? What happened in your room? Are you listening? 
what happened in your room is not an isolated incident. It is something that is happening everywhere to everyone. So, where are you gonna go? Where are you gonna run? Where are you gonna hide? Nowhere. Because there's no one like you left. That's right. Oh, God. That's right. That's good. You're listening now. That's very good. Okay, now I know you're frightened, Steve. I know you're scared. That's okay. I understand that. You're confused. But let me tell you something, Steve. Let me tell you something. All that anger, all that fear, all that confusion, it's gonna melt away. It's gonna go away, Steve. It's gonna go away. You go to sleep. You wake up. It's very simple. In the morning, you wake up. You feel wonderful. We will be together. We're connected. We're close. We're together. More pure. That's good. Dad. Dad. Let's go to bed, Steve. Let's go to bed. Get away from me! Get away from my kids! I watched that, that at home, the end? and my fucking no. jaw dropped. I, I could not believe how he constructed that scene. Yeah. Oh my god, it's so that sick. It's actually the kind of. Uh, <laughs> it's brilliant. Brilliant. I can't believe I haven't seen that. That's it's incredibly really. effective. I don't know how it fell under the radar. I guess just the wrong movie at the wrong time. But it's, and also like Abel Ferrara has always been a little bit yeah. off the yeah, track. Yeah, and definitely, it is definitely. just sort of an odd film. Like cause he did Bad Lieutenant, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. It's yeah, too weird to be mainstream. Yeah. And it's too weird for the horror genre. So probably the hardcore horror people aren't really going to be that interested. Yeah. But man, that scene is in her, she, her, her hands. Oh my God. Her explanation. That acting. Oh God. Amazing. So well, good, I mean, that's right? a fantastic. I'm glad, <laughs> so glad you played that scene because I did want to talk about in every one of the versions, there's some version of that scene yes. where some pod person is like, hey man, like, yeah, come with us. Come with us. It'll be fine. You'll be happier. It'll be this, that. And this one is different. 56 and 78. It's like, this is what we have to offer. You'll be happy. Yeah. This one is really playing on the fear of yeah. you are You're alone. alone. Right. Which is a fascinating difference. And also to put it into 1993, grunge era, reality bites, the alt the slacker culture, alt slacker culture, right. where being different and out yes. of step was lionized. This one ends so weirdly. So the 56 one famously ends with a studio tacked on ending, it's all okay. The government found out we're going to be able to put a stop to it. 78 obviously ends with the fake where all of a sudden it's horrifying all over again. Right. And then this one ends ambiguously where her boyfriend, who's a military helicopter pilot, helps them escape after she them. throws her young brother off the helicopter because it's he's just the, pod the, person. Pi the pilot. They're the last two left. <laughs> that is it's that's a crazy some real tough scene. filmmaking <laughs> to have a kid turn evil. Spoiler. Kid turned evil and like grab her and he's yelling and she throws him out of a helicopter. And then he does the scream as he's falling as he's, back. Oh, oh my God. Awesome. That's yeah. brilliant. Well, this 93 Abel Ferrara ends. <laughs> she throws her brother off the helicopter. Her boyfriend, played by male model Billy Worth, lands the helicopter in a military base. And then it has this ominous kind of voiceover where all her sentiments are very negative. They're all very much like how much she hates them. Yeah, it's about vengeance. She's lost her humanity. And the last, I think, image is of a guy waving the helicopter in. It's left even way less clear whether humanity is saved or fucked. Or fucked in a different way. By not being assimilated, it creates this sort of backlash reaction, which is also yes. the loss of humanity by going towards vengeance. Because the helicopter also has missiles on it, yeah. and they do blow some stuff up before, <laughs> before yeah. that landing. Bit. I got to see this version. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. crazy. 
I love it's it. got Forrest Whitaker too. Um, <laughs> typically very restrained. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I play just a little bit of a scene from Forrest because he's so good in this. I'm seeing people at the infirmary who are exhibiting extreme delusional fixations. People afraid to sleep. People afraid to deal with family members, afraid of family members. Uh, exhibiting paranoia about others, about other people's identities. People afraid of themselves. All of a sudden, I got a camp full of very displaced people. <sighs> I don't know what you're seeing, Doc, but I can tell you it's, it's not the PCBs. That phenomenon, it's just not part of the symptomology. I need you to keep me up to date on your research. I'm worried about these people. That's earlier in the movie. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's okay. when uh, Terry Kinney, Terry Kinney in the movie uh, works for the EPA, and he's showing up at the Army base to check some PCBs and water content and nuclear waste that's been emanating out into the rivers. Because, again, it's 1993. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> Ipa, Ipa, as Christina Lee says. Gabrielle Anwar, she, was, she had a great moment in the 90s there. Um, scent of a woman. She was the girl who danced with Al Pacino. Got it. This, she has kind of an exotic look that works in the 93 version yes. because she sort of feels otherworldly. There you go, Paul. There's, a, there's an image to haunt your- Oh, that's the dog. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Bullcast and Crew is brought to you by Two Different Guys on a Bench, a new comedy series from American Vandal star Ryan O'Flanagan. Two Different Guys on a Bench, where Ryan talks to Ryan on a bench. We keep the comedy simple, folks. Two different guys on a bench videos can be found now on Facebook at Chuckler Comedy. Like and follow Chuckler for the latest and greatest short form comedy videos. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. Paul, we're about to move on to the other aspects of our uh, podcast. If you yeah, have a I few can, moments to participate I, with us. I, What's that? Oh, you want me to? Yeah, just, we want you to stay. Oh, all right, all right, yeah, right. Leave. Let's start with the yeah. CCU because that's a segue from the movie to other Perfect. things. Columbo Cinematic Universe. Ah, one more thing. That's our brilliant sound effect intro by Matt the Engineer, who you know, Paul. Yeah. Pretend like you heard it. Oh my you God, it's amazing. <laughs> so the Columbo Cinematic Universe of Invasion of the Body Snatchers involves... Jeff Goldblum, uh-huh. who was a uh, protester uncredited in the 1975 episode, A Case of Immunity. Leonard Nimoy in the classic Columbo episode, A Stitch in Crime. That's a great name. It started with that and built a plot around it. Something about a tailor. No, a surgeon. Oh, it similar, actually, it's thing. a thrilling murder mystery involving dissolving suture. Oh, they had that back Ooh, then? Ooh, that's rough. Yeah. You're right, it is a different color. Uh, I noticed that when the fellow showed them to me. But you know, I'll bet somebody could take some dye or something and color one to make it look like the other. I mean, you could fix it up so that no one would know the difference. That would be murder, wouldn't it, Lieutenant? Yes, yes. Yes, it certainly would, sure. Uh, because that would explain why Miss Martin was so bothered after the operation, and it would explain why she wanted to see the chemist at the company that made the suture. That's murder. That certainly is, no question about it. <laughs> What's so funny? <laughs> Excuse me, Lieutenant. I had to play it as though you were serious. <laughs> you don't really believe all those foolish things you say, do you? <laughs> I believe you killed Sharon Martin 
And I believe you're trying to kill Dr. Heidemann. Lieutenant Columbo, you're remarkable. You have intelligence. You have perception. You have great tenacity. You've got everything except proof. They're like what? Well, they're like thirty-five years old, right there, aren't they? <laughs> I'm not kidding, aren't they? Well, no, probably 40, a little older, maybe forties. Yeah, forties. This is always like disturbing yes. when I look back at these things, and I'm like, I am significantly older than they are. Yeah, yeah. amazing though. Peter Falk is incredible. Yeah, he incredible. is. I did not realize they're not just an hour-long procedural. That these are no, they were ninety-minute TV made-for-TV movies. Exactly. That you know, and and the caliber of actor Donald Pleasance. Well, Being every great actor down on their luck in the <laughs> 60s and 70s and 80s would come do a star turn on Columbo. And, yeah. Yeah. and the final, going all the way back to the 1956 invasion, Kevin McCarthy played Dr. Frank Simmons in an episode called Requiem for a Fallen Star, starring Peter Falk and Baxter Mel Farrar. Edith Head, famed costume designer. Uh-huh. She plays herself. It's the part a story she was of born a to play. Faded movie actress commits a murder, and Columbo's a huge fan of hers, but has to eventually arrest her for murder. Because oh. that's part of the job. Now, Chris, are you ready for Rants and Raves? Uh, yes. This means he went to a museum. Uh, I did, but... Uh-huh. You I'm sort of banned on talking, but I don't, yeah. I don't know why. Jason Chris is famous, as you know, like Paul, art. from listening to the podcast regularly. No, yes. I usually I cut give it Chris out. a hard time for um, talking about for loving things outside of myself. Museum exhibitions that he praises <laughs> on a podcast. <laughs> finds like, offensive. It's no, it's just like it's not no, relative to what we're doing. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I, well, I thought it's it was too, about too, too culturally highbrow, right? It just doesn't like no one can go because by the time this thing comes out, the thing is closed. So oh, like, I see. Right, right, right. You're just saying it to burnish your own credentials. Nonsense. It's because what else? What else I do? Let's not argue. Well. Why don't you start? This will be nice and populous. Okay. The new Werner Herzog documentary, <laughs> Meeting Gorbachev. Oh at, yeah. Uh, film Forum. Oh, I read. Yeah. Awesome. I read you about that. You saw it. I, I read did about it. it. I, read, I read. That's half. That's that's almost like doing it. I know. It was it was great. I'm a big Herzog fan in general. Uh, Is he on camera? Yeah, of no. course. Of course. <laughs> what are you? I'm not going to see Gorbachev. So it's fascinating because it's take on history and Gorbachev himself is just very different than what you would expect. His conception of what has happened to Russia since then and uh, how he remembers things going down is pretty different. And at a time where, I don't know if you know, you know, Russia's been in the news a lot lately. So uh, you get a very different perspective on the fall of communism. Uh, so I just think it's a wonderful movie. And it's also made by an old man about another old man. So you get to t- see two people talking slowly to each other. So I really love it. You know, it's at Film Forum right now, but for the rest of you yokel out in the rest of this uh, schmucky planet. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it'll be on a TV somewhere soon. Paul, you have anything that you'd like to rave about mm. that you saw recently that you're moved by? Uh, movie-wise? It could be anything, could be Paul. Any, mm. uh, except for museums as as or comic books. Quickly, or this is going to be <clears throat> highly unsatisfying. <laughs> wow. And there you go, ladies and gentlemen. That's how Paul sold himself so well as an actor <laughs> this is, all throughout uh, his career. This is going to suck. I'm so sorry. Probably doing a piece that I hardly know for this edition. Uh, I'm no, really I, I, I started to This is so lame. I started to watch Border last night. I believe it's Swedish. It's about a woman who can smell fear and other things, uh, almost in an animalistic way. Hmm. And she has a. She is physically um, fearful. No, no. Uh, her confused. Th- her her appearance is uh, more challenging. Um, and it's and she meets someone else. Like I don't. I only saw the first. 45 minutes, found it uh, incredibly engaging, not only because it was really well done and everything, but because it's so quiet. Mm. And so 
You don't, you, and you don't have no idea what it's about as it unfolds. And it's, it just struck the silence of it struck me because it's rare that you see that, of course, in like. Now that, yes, that American is a films. great rave, Chris. That taught me something I didn't know about something I didn't know. But I have yet to see the rest of it. It may go into like <laughs> Avengers Land. No, I don't think it's going to do that. What do you mean? You didn't watch the whole thing? No, no. I, well, I'm, <laughs> I got tired. I started falling. one movie. <laughs> I'm exhausted lately. So I, <laughs> it's like never, almost never watch the whole movie. I feel enriched after watching this, which is often not, not, you know, as Jason knows, I'm a huge lover of yeah. middle to low worth quality oh, movies on Netflix. It gets me through the night sometimes. And but I this, always is feel something, like garbage. this is something we're going to have to get into in another podcast with Paul, because I've known Paul probably 30 years for at least 10 or 15 years. I've been trying to identify what this type of movie that he watches is. It's not easily categorizable to say, oh, he likes a B movie or he likes a bad movie. There's 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 something really specifically unique that he yeah. is attracted to. Well, and like, it's what not would be an example. Oh, God, let's not, let's not get into it. I can't do, honestly. <laughs> Because it just goes I'll, nowhere. I'll, and what we're going to have to do is he's going to have to prepare and bring in clips. Yes, that's right. And then we're going to have to try to figure out what because it is. I don't know. Chris, I don't I've know. tried this one. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, I'll tell it you, doesn't work. Uh, the only thing I can tell you is what it's not. It's not high quality. <laughs> it's not It's not good stuff. Okay. Anyway, that's my, that's my rave. I have a rant and a rave. My first rant, have you guys heard that CBS television is doing something called, quote, Norman Lear's All in the Family? It's basically a celebration of All in the Family, which we can all agree, landmark television accomplishment that we love. My rant is against the idea that Norman Lear, who's still alive at 96 years old, I believe, would allow it to be put forth into the world under the title, quote, Norman Lear's All in the Family. The show came from a British show that already existed. And Norman Lear's partner in Tandem Productions was the person who saw that show on television and thought it was so outrageous and so crazy that he told Norman Lear, like, oh my God, you can't believe what they're getting away with on this show. And of course, they didn't get away with it. They canceled it very quickly. But it was so outrageous that he told Norman, like, you've got to watch this. Norman Lear, to his credit, was the one who said, hey, we should try to do this in the States. And he optioned the material. But it went through a long development process. And again, they were partners. Norman Lear has been accused for a long time of erasing everyone else of import from his own creation myth. No kidding. Yes. Now, I'm all for celebrating All in the Family. I'm all for saying, hey, that was great. It broke all kinds of barriers and boundaries. But I'm upset that Norman Lear still has some sort of hole in his soul, but he doesn't stop down the process and say, it isn't and never was Norman Lear's All in the Family. So right. why, why don't we just call it All in the Family? Like, why does his name have to be attached to it? I, but I, if you read the history of All in the Family, there's so many critical moments where it's actually Bud Yorkin who brought Rob Reiner in to, to the process because Rob Reiner was a writer on a show that mm -hmm. Bud Yorkin had been involved with and used to drive him crazy because he was like, he always had a million questions about everything. And when they were looking for someone who would drive Archie Bunker crazy, he was like, get this fucking guy. Right. He was the one who was at CBS television on something else and had the cassette and ended up showing it for um, an executive at CBS. And the executive was like, well, I got to have this. And he said, well, you can't have it because ABC has an option on it. But ABC passed on it famously and on and on and on. So anyway, my rave, are you guys following the James Charles and Tati YouTube beauty blogger feud story, which has jumped from a world I knew nothing about prior to two days ago? I, I was sort of confused. Is it just about him advertising with a competing uh, hair vitamin sponsor? brand? 
Is yes. that the whole thing? Well, if you watch Tati's 44-minute video, as I did yesterday, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. There's been a, a litany of behavior she accuses him of in terms of his sexual approaches to other teenagers who are exploring their sexuality, and he may be using his fame and his power and his celebrity to try to have encounters with people that they either regret or feel awkward about. And she gets into great detail about how this kind of stuff had been happening, and she and her husband helped him and were parental figures for him. What's fascinating about it is, like, at first, it's so easy to dismiss. Like, these people are insane. Who the hell are these people? I've never heard of them before. Right. And then you come to find out he's got 13 million YouTube subscribers. She's got 10 million YouTube subscribers. Her video has been viewed probably 50 million times. Then you get into this whole fucking world I didn't even know about. Drama channels on YouTube. Tea accounts. Receipts. Mm-hmm. The whole beauty blogger, vlogger thing to begin with, like it's a whole fucking subsystem. And Naomi Fry in The New Yorker wrote a really interesting piece yesterday, which I'm just going to quote from. She said, watching Tati Westbrook's video, I might have felt boredom. It is 43 minutes. But instead, I felt the excitement that must overwhelm an anthropologist discovering a lost culture, obscure but oddly fascinating, (laughs) with its own dramas, alliances, and enmities. Added to this effect was the comedy of the gaping chasm between the flimsiness of the conflict and its melodramatic presentation. Speaking directly to the camera, her hair and skin smooth and gleaming and her legs drawn up to her chest— Westbrook's tone often seems more appropriate for a bereavement support group than a skirmish kindled by a supplement sponsorship. What's fascinating about it is it is something. The conflict is real. And she actually goes into great detail about the business conflicts. Yeah. She methodically walks through like contracts are really complicated. You know, my husband would help him. We would do, you can't just do this. You can't just do that. It is touched off by the fact that he was at Coachella and he felt unsafe in the VIP area. And supposedly to hear him tell it, texted a friend that he felt unsafe, and the friend alerted Sugar Bear, who, aware of James Charles's massive celebrity, right. said, of course, give him these passes. And he took them, and he said, what do I need to do? In the parlance of the Instagram influencer, that meant, how am I paying you back? And they said, just do one quick ad for these hair vitamins, and that's it. Now, Tati has a very successful and competing brand of vitamins. Right. That's the breach. It's been a swift financial decimation yeah. of him, right? Cancel like, culture. Right. Another thing I didn't really know about. It's crazy aggressive and like, uh, I'm going to now take your money away from you. Well, he did it to himself. That's some well, but big, stakes are, the stakes are both like completely meaningless and actually real life heavy. Like yeah. that's what's so yeah. fascinating Well, it's about. like a one person as corporation, like business. Yeah. But why did this jumper, like Alex that we work with was saying that she's been thinking a lot about why is this the one drama in this YouTube world that has leapt over into regular culture? I would guess that it reached critical mass. They've just grown enough that even schlubs like us would hear about it. Yeah. Anybody below... 30. Your children would probably watch much more YouTube. Oh, they know they much more else. about subscribe. Like, they know all they the- do? Well, not on the beauty forum, but you know, they know like the- Do uh, they know what receipts are or drama channels? I don't think they know that, no. They just know, like, they're video games. Yeah. There's overlap between a lot of these different internet subcultures. Yeah. When you're watching these YouTube things, in this specific drama, it's storytelling. Someone was wronged. Someone did- take this person under their wing at age 17 and help them go from literally nothing to being a multimillionaire signed to major cosmetic labels. This kid's only 19 years old. 
And as you're watching her video and as you're watching his answer video and then the other guy who tries yeah. to insert himself into it and then all the stuff, instead of going to a movie or a TV show, I think kids are following a drama. This drama is not new. Their apology videos are their own yeah. genre. And these beefs between one YouTuber and another, mm -hmm. I'm sure there's sincerity, but there's also a performative element to it because it does create the drama. The content itself is the people's personalities and their lives. Yes, there's some element of the makeup tips and, mm -hmm. and all that. But it's about being authentic to their audience. But it's supposedly. about that authenticity, yeah. right? The overlap between personal life and professional life mm -hmm. and the inability to distinguish between the two. When I first heard about this, I wasn't sure if the fact that he did that commercial for the uh, yeah. competing brand, is she just insulted? Which is one thing. Mm -hmm. Or is it the fact that he contractually is obligated to not side with somebody else? I mean, this to me is something that makes it actually, besides being fascinating, also really uncomfortable. The inability to disentangle product from personality mm -hmm. and the fact that monetizing these things is part well, of it. It's like McLuhan. The, the personality is the product. Yeah. Yes. And the apology videos are so bizarre. After he did the vitamin video first, she posted a barefaced video. No makeup. And this is part of this authenticity thing that is real and is performative. You're deciding to make a video and post it so you could stop down and do your makeup and do whatever you want, but you're choosing not to right. do that. And his apology video, again, he is really stripped bare, really bad lighting. And these are choices. These are fascinating, yes. weird, performative choices that are going on top of this very real kind of primal conflict, like a mother-son rift. <laughs> it's so weird to think that authenticity is something that you can indicate by having no makeup and doing harsh lighting, but that is just as performative, that is just as much of a choice yes. as spending time to make yourself up. It's a whole different language yes. than what so many of us who are older are used to. And yet at the same time, you can recognize elements of it. Because like the idea yeah. of somebody using harsher lighting to seem more vulnerable, yeah. taking off their makeup sure. to both symbolically and physically show yes. them being more open and without artifice, even if artifice is, yes. is part of it. Even old people like us, we can recognize that. You know, yeah, you know what it's it is? just yeah, so right. integrated. It's not that, it's more like there's a level of sophistication in yes. that that you don't expect because you feel like, well, you're in a different yes. genre here. So you don't expect that kind of thought to yes. go through it. And it's amazing and enlightening how I mean, much insane thought is going yes, on. Yes, like how, way more than how, we like, know. Actually, <laughs> actually, it's the same level of thought, but on just a different yeah. medium. And you're like, oh my God. They, so it's actually the exact opposite of what I just said. It's the same thing, but you just don't expect it on like the YouTube level. And it works. And millions of people know the code yeah. and can crack yes. like, oh, I see what every choice means. It's almost like they're all Kremlinologists <laughs> from the 80s. You can look at like a picture and like, oh, this person's standing far away from this person. So therefore they're oh on the outside. Oh my God, yeah. And yeah, like, yeah, read into it and interpret That's all of those, those There's so much do. communication. My final rave, Chris, um, in my ongoing lifelong quest to get you to appreciate Mr. Keanu Reeves as much as I do, you may have seen Lots the story of, of his appearance on The Colbert Show, where Keanu stunned an entire studio audience and Colbert himself with his answer to the following question. Okay. What do you think happens when we die, Keanu Reeves? <laughs> I know that the ones who love us will miss us. Keanu Reeves is amazing. Isn't that an amazing moment? It's a beauty. Yes, it was a, it's a beautiful sentiment. He's and choked a beautiful up. Moment. Can yeah. you hear his voice? He is, uh, yeah. <laughs> I sound like such a sucker. He's incredibly authentic to me. Like, I hate to use that word, but he like, is. he is who he, he is. is who he is. Me. Yeah, Chris. 100%. Take it. Yeah, good I for am you. all 100% <laughs> in. Chris, what Chris is a, he's a Keanu hater. How can you hate? How well, can you now, you're getting at the, man, now you're getting at the ABCs of Chris. I mean, just because he's an unfeeling monster. 
I mean, there's that. Wait, Keanu or me? You. I think he, man, I think you like, look, I, I don't know him. It's just, he is, he is, he is who he is, man. He's a good person. Oh, I don't, sure. he's I don't a know lovely person. Going on. Come on. Wow. I feel like Spirited defense of Keanu. <laughs> <laughs> a good person, mean, huh? No, 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 not just a good person. That's a defense only Keanu could love. Well, are we talking about the actor or are we talking about the person? They're or the both? same thing, yeah, man. They are the same thing. He's getting closer to the singularity <laughs> yes. of who he is That's as right. time goes on. That's right. Yeah. I'm telling you, on a spiritual level and on an acting level, he is his stuff gets better and better and better. And he is in an ideal situation. <laughs> I'm telling you. All right, if you say, look, Have I you seen, seen John Wick? No. Any of them. No, I, uh, I, I would like to because I, I hear they're well choreographed. They are fantastic. And stuff, but I, don't, I don't like watching him. Oh God, no, no, Jason, come on, he's so good. Who? Okay, yeah, Keanu <laughs> in John Wick. Yeah, Keanu. you brought this up. I mean, <laughs> who? What? Is this a ruse? Are you guys I, not actually not? You no, 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 no. no, no I really I am no, deadly no. serious. Okay, no, about Keanu Reeves. And I haven't always been a Keanu. Like I, I, I didn't always like. I've seen Keanu in many things. Where I'm like, oh, uh, I don't like that. Look. He seems like a great guy. I love the fact that he didn't do Heat so he could do Hamlet in Canada. Like, I, I think that's great. That. I remember he seems that. like a that. Yeah. fantastic guy. That was a sweet sentiment. I, I, don't, I don't like watching it on screen. I, and whatever authentic person he you is. You just don't get it, man. Just, I don't. You don't. Yes. I mean, look, that we have many, all things can be true, but you just don't get Keanu. Yeah. And that's okay. But I'm just saying you're missing something. You're missing out on a joy. You're missing out. On a purity, you're missing out on a good-hearted person who just wants to entertain people. And that's what the whole industry is about, Chris. It's about putting butts in seats and going to see movies. And guess what? Millions of people are going to do that and see John Wick 3 because of that guy, 54-year-old yeah, Keanu Reeves. Yeah, because there was a pod below their bed that told them, <laughs> oh, that, like, I should enjoy that. Are you ready to move on to Latchkey? What, did, what is it called now? <laughs> I, I came up with this, but I can't remember. What did I call it? Wasn't it just Latchkey Kid? Was it? Or was it Latchkey TV? Latchkey TV. That's right. Are you sure? You're right. just saying that sure, to move no, on. I like it. Sure. No, I like it. <laughs> Hello? We should have had Paul do it. You know, Paul and I share something very unique. Paul and I are both the only male children of single moms. Wow. That's a powerful thing. Powerful. Yeah, life. yeah, it yeah. It can mess you up. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's a lot of roles to navigate. Now, one of the things that I, we probably both had in common, Paul, for me, it started in third grade where I was allowed to walk home from school, but my mom didn't get home from work till about 5.30 or 6 o'clock. The latchkey child thing, you let yourself into your own home, you make yourself some food, you sit down and you watch TV for three to four hours straight. So this poignant segment, Latchkey TV. Oh, poignant? Where we give someone a vintage 1980s TV guide. Uh, in this case, Chris has chosen one which has a beautiful illustration of the A-Team. So I, growing up, because TV was not very popular in, in my household, we did not have TV Guide. I didn't realize, this stuff is, this is chock full of stuff. This has got, this cover is Informative great Informative articles. What Soviet TV reveals about the people, which was very interesting. Mm, wow. And, Speaking uh, of Gorbachev. Well, exactly. I was 1987. Thinking, I was thinking of that. There are all these great ads for cigarettes. <laughs> And did you know the Insider Grapevine? It has like a gossip, a weekly sure. gossip column. Yeah. Funny enough, since the A-Team was on the cover, I think we're getting ready for a season premiere. This week's issue has an interview with George Papard. He was a man of a lot of integrity and walked away from a lot of jobs and pissed off a lot of people. And the A-Team was in some ways his uh, ticket back, but he apparently was still difficult even on, on that side. But good for him, because it did come from integrity. Well, he, he was probably to do a good job. also a like... Uh... Probably like a classically trained actor. Or he something. did transfer to Carnegie Mellon. 
from uh, Purdue University. He was in the Marine Corps. He studied civil engineering at Purdue, where he's a member of the Purdue Playmakers Theater Troupe. So he probably then pursued it. Made a stage debut in 1949 at the Pittsburgh Playhouse. Have you been on the boards at the Pittsburgh Playhouse? I have been on the boards. I have not. I think really? it was, Who did you play? It was a play called All the Rage. Keith Redeem? Oh, yeah. You know Keith Redeem? Yeah. Sure. It was a new play about guns and wow. violence. And, heavy, uh, did you get to be really macho and, I, and I sort of be I, tortured? Like, I'm only resorting to violence because I can't express myself, man. No, I killed someone, though. Ouch. But with a pair of scissors, I believe. Stage scissors? No, no they were real scissors, but I, I had to. I mean, did that, you have to do like a say. trained actor scissor move to not Yeah, something them? like that. Yeah, oh, there, was wow. blood ah. there, was, there were blood packets. Jeez, and, that uh, sounds complicated. I don't know if I'd trust you with that. Not I, you, just anyone. Yeah. I also got beat up during that performance. I got you beat mean up. in on the stage? show? Or? No, not on stage. I was beaten or by up. the reviewers. <laughs> <laughs> at, a club, at a club in Pittsburgh, I got beaten up the night before Jesus. with the cast, and then I had to go in and do the show. Well, that probably helped, though. Uh, yeah, I went bananas. I had like a black eye and I was emotionally traumatized. <laughs> and my poor castmate, I remember doing the scene and I was like, I was like literally stuttering. Like vibrating. I was like literally stuttering, <laughs> crying and laughing, like bad shit crazy oh behavior, like go nuts. And I just remember finishing the scene where I stabbed him. And I think he walked off stage. He was, and I just heard him in that wings going, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I always felt, I'll never forget that. I always felt oh so bad about God. that. Anyway. Yeah. Wow, that must have been amazing to see that. Clubs in Pittsburgh, that was a thing. A club? Yeah. Like a nightclub? Yeah, it was a nightclub. <laughs> nightclub. Yeah. Really? Do you remember what it was called? The dancing? I believe it was called Metropole. Wow. Oh, wow. Big fella. Big fella took me out. Big wow. time. Were you mouthing off? He was a bouncer, and I might have told him to calm down. <laughs> <laughs> I might have said. You were probably like, calm down, calm down. Just, I'm getting it. Why don't, why don't you just take back it, it easy, off, Barney? Saying, we're leaving. And then it was, he didn't have tolerance for that, so... Do you think that the fight had anything to do that you were on stage sort of exploring violence? Like on my end? Like, yeah, you, think you took the role with you at the club. Exactly. I yeah. think to bring it back as an only male child of a single woman, I think I'm a little defensive at times. That's what I think. And I, I think that. I bet you were fucking amazing the next day on stage. I don't know. We'll see. I bet it was. It was. Yeah, we'll the see. black eye, the missing tooth, all this stuff. It might have been a little distracting for oh, us. No, I think I was an audience member. Coffee eyes, stitches. I don't know the role, uh, but you know, it comes in like, oh, like Sir John Donahue coming in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, is it tea time? Yeah. Okay, anyway, Chris, well, on anyway, to so your selections. Is, there's a, a lot of A-team stuff, including the insider grapevine. This is actually, you and Mr. T are very similar in this way. Table this, fools. The A-team's two-hour season opener, shooting on the cruise ship Tropical, bound for Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, turned out to be no love boat. Insiders mm. say that a disgruntled Mr. T refused to continue filming after he discovered a group of crew members sitting on his customary dinner table. Ooh. According to reports, the crew members refused to budge to Mr. T's table. and, believe it or not, made fun of Mr. T and a bodyguard, what? whereupon T demanded that the offenders be fired or he'd quit. They weren't. Wow. They, they weren't. weren't. They were not. Wow. Well, they're probably part of a union. So Yeah. yeah. Were these oh, were extras? No, this is, these are, are these people, people that working work on, on the ship. ship. Like you, like you're Man. renting our ship for like a week. All right, Chris, so what else is on TV? So the day is going to start. I'll get home from school at, let's say, three o'clock. Yep. Probably a little bit after. I'll do sure. my homework first. So at four o'clock. Well, it's got to get, listen, work has to get done. Okay. You know, maybe it's okay, you single, <laughs> you princes of your homes. Homework isn't cool, man. I was thinking about watching The Littlest Hobo. Uh, on Channel 6. Isn't that about a dog? Right. Oh. Hobo helps the shipwrecked yeah. family survive yeah. on the deserted island. Yeah, it's island. a dog. It's a little dog. It's a little yeah. dog. dog well, show. They said it was the conclusion, so I figured I'll be lost. Yeah, if I pick probably it up too much complicated plot to pick up on. So instead, I'm going to watch Police Woman, Ooh, which yeah. I still don't know. Angie Dickinson. Name. 
Angie Dickinson, but I don't know what the character's name is, but she's the policewoman. An overzealous rookie becomes implicated in an extortion scam. Mm. And that the guy does tell me that it was Angie Dickinson. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is a very A lot of extortion era. in the 80s. <laughs> it's but, really humankind's most elemental crime. And then I would, at 5 p.m., jump over to channel... Oh, no, I'd, I'd jump back to Channel 6, where The Littlest Hobo was, because that's when WKRP in Cincinnati uh, would be Which on. one? A photographer, George Weiner, sneaks nude photos of Jennifer after mm. she and Andy pose for a publicity poster. Yes. First of two parts. I remember that, sounds, that one. That's pretty freaking heavy. That was that a very, is, that was like a very special episode that was, of KRP. Okay. Because her, her privacy was violated. Class. In part two, we got into, you know, Jennifer is more than just a sex object. You guys all treat me a certain way. And they all go, no, we don't, Jennifer. And then there's sort of a litany of like, remember that time? Yeah. And um, they all learn a little something about themselves. Well, good. I'm glad they do actually yeah. treat it that way as opposed to this just being the plot for for some laughs. Yeah. Uh, at 5.30, I would watch, well, it's, it's a tough call. Probably the news, knowing you. Well, I did watch a lot of people. <laughs> I liked the People's Court, but I think that's because it just happened to be oh, yeah. on. Sure, uh, Judge Wapner. A case involving the purchase of a watch. A countersuit <laughs> has been filed. <laughs> Which it doesn't tell us. Are much. you sure you can handle the stakes that high at this young age? That sounds <laughs> well, a counter pretty suit dramatic. Hasn't filed, so that promises drama. A counter suit has been filed. I did see on the TV guy that they're going to rerun that in about an hour. Oh, you catch so it instead, there. I'm going to catch uh, this episode of the Jeffersons because Ooh, I freaking loved George. Is as far as George Jefferson talk about TV character, like a, an amazing character. Yeah. Don't you mean Norman Lear's The Jeffersons? Sorry, go ahead. Don't let me, don't get me started. Don't let me get me started. <laughs> That's okay. The Jason Silo story. I like it. It's good. Okay, go I'm ahead. Sorry. Spit out. George Sherman Helmsley offers Florence advice on snaring a man after a date fails to ask her out a second time. Mm. Wait, wait, wait. You don't think that George would have good oh, dating Weezy. advice? Weezy. For Weezy's the oh, wife. The wife. Yeah. Yeah. She's now, you know, Lenny Kravitz's mom is Roxy Roker. Do you know that? Wow. Married well, to uh, the white guy. Well, I was going to say, what was Tom. the name of that? Yeah. Tom, Tom and Helen. Yeah. Oh. I always liked Tom and Helen kind of more than I liked George and Wheezy. As a young boy, I was highly attuned to what sort of home life I wanted to have versus what I did have. I always adopted other families that I thought had the life that I wanted or the house that I thought I deserved to live in. <laughs> and I did that with TV show families too. Yeah. If I could have like lived in Alex B. Keaton's home with those two cool parents with like a room that I could sort of snuggle up in with the, the rabbit that the, you've gotten rid of since then. Yeah. Oh yeah, Flopsy Brown. You remember the show Ben uh, about the guy who hung out with the bear? He, Gentleman. He, Gentleman. Gentleman. Yeah. I was watching that as a as a second grader and it was a very emotional moment where I think they were parting ways or they were like having an emotional moment with Ben and with the, bear. the bear. Oh man. And I was watching it on the couch by myself with my cat, who I love more than life, and I got so upset. That we never had emotional moments like that. So I turned to my cat, who was like right here, right next to my face. And I was like, why don't you ever do that with me? Like in all seriousness. And I just remember him, him oh doing that thing of like when they get, you know, air blown in their face. They kind of like <laughs> wince and just kind of got up softly and walked away. Oh. So that, I identify with that. Jesus I wanted, Paul. I wanted the world of TV in my world. That's I wanted a that heartbreaking to be story. my life. Wow. I wanted a communion with the animal world. It's hard to commune with a cat. Oh, yeah. I know, but I did. Hard. You did? Oh, well, I, I wanted it. sounded that I way. Wanted. Well, you wanted to, but did the cat reciprocate your, the level, you know what I mean? No, like no. a dog, love something a more traditional. I loved it. Like I love commune just on cat. your own. What was level? the cat's name? <laughs> Twinkie. <laughs> <laughs> Twinkie. 
<laughs> I love, yeah, 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 yeah. I love that cat so much. And that cat <laughs> died in that house. It got run Jesus. over, and it was Wait, literally it got, got run, run over, over in, in the, the house. house. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was out front of the house, and uh, it was oh, one Jesus. of the most heartbreaking moments you were there? of my life. My friend Charlene came in, knocked on my door, and said, "Paul, your cat is dead." And I threatened to kill myself with a steak what? knife, and then I ran out. And Jesus, devastated. Paul, too heavy for this podcast. Where is this? <laughs> Oh my God! Just like wait, you threatened to kill yourself before even seeing the cat. It was like I didn't believe her, so she was like, "No, no, no, he's dead." And I took a steak knife and I put it on my heart and I said, "I swear to God, I'm going to kill myself if you don't tell me the truth." And she said, "No, you got to come." I went. Talk about being emotionally manipulative. Yeah. Holy Christ! Dial it down. I couldn't dial it down. It was one of the worst days. Did she do the same thing like a cat with air blown in her face? How many people in my life have had that reaction? Oh my God. I have a reaction they go. <laughs> Walking wow. away. It's, that's incredible. I don't even think I can recover from that story. Yeah, I'm sorry. The <laughs> series premiere of I Had Three Wives with David Faustino oh. and Victor Garber, that can't hold a candle. Victor Garber and David Faustino so were in look, something together so in I 1987? If you see this ad here. That is Victor Garber. So I saw that ad. So then the description, because that turns out to be on at seven o'clock. Guy, you know, peeking around a corner with three women. I had three wives. Oh, this sounds like like it'll be a sitcom about a mm. cop who's got like juggling the women. Come to life find out. It, no, it's a crime drama. Uh. I had three wives. Andrew, David Faustino, plays detective with his cousin. But when they stumble onto a bank robbery scheme, no one will believe them. I don't see what this has to do with the three wives. You would choose to watch this? Yeah, let, I'll okay. try something new. All right. I can't imagine I'd watch it Not again. for the more understandable young boy reason that there's four women in the ad. Three. You're more it's like, like sounds like an interesting premise for a cop or, show. But I guess he's not the cop. He's the cousin of the cop. Let's get back to something more safe. safe? I'm still shocked by Paul's story. It's still <laughs> You want safe? How about the Billy Graham crusade, which is going on at <laughs> that time? It's from Anaheim, California this week. What is the crusade? Is that what? sort of like people would like migrate there from all over the world in order to be blessed by Billy Graham? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Jesus. it's like, it's like, a, like the Grateful Dead goes to a con hey. and people come. This hey, is the same hey, thing. Hey, people whoa, come whoa, to whoa, hear him whoa, riff. Whoa, whoa. Same, <laughs> same diff. Don't bait same me, diff. bro. Same diff, man. It's like the same way they take a lick. And Jerry's a force for good it. and acceptance. Yeah, I meant only in the dynamic of people mm. coming from miles around. This week, will the world survive? Uh, that's the question. on the week. Obviously, this is in 1985. In 87, so we found out no. Spoiler alert. It does not. What year is this? 85. 85. 85, okay. And then uh, guests include Johnny and June Carter Cash, who sang oh, The Johnny. Old Rugged Cross. Well, At 7.30, we have two different threes companies that we can choose from. Mm. Jack, John Ritter, and Chrissy, Suzanne Summers, are left alone together for an evening. Mm. Joyce DeWitt. Well, what happens? I don't know. Oh, that's the gonna, whole plot? <laughs> that's the whole plot. They wouldn't tell. They wouldn't I guess they probably decided this not to do it. Actually, some hilarious would... miscommunication of some sort. Uh, but he probably told also... her a heartbreaking story of how he threatened to kill himself with a steak knife when his cat got run over. She got horrified and fled the home. <laughs> yeah. And then they had to replace her. She never wanted uh, to come back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we could either watch that episode where they don't do it. Yeah. Or, or the episode, a mean acquaintance from Jack's Navy days, David Dukes. Jack was in the Navy. Pays an inopportune visit. I guess. I don't well, remember Jack being in the Navy. I think I sort of remember that he had a life What before. a strange premise for a show that was. Like in 1985, you couldn't be a single guy living with two girls. Well, that would be so like unacceptable anyone? to your landlord. No hanky panky. But that, I guess that's you got to pretend to be gay in order to be. But it's Wait, okay but for. Think, did he pretend to be gay or did everybody just assume yeah, that? No, that was the deal with Mr. Furley. Was he? Okay. They told me. He pretended so to be could, gay so that he could live with the two right. women. I would probably watch that over health wise, which is on at the same time, even though it was about poison proofing the home. Mm. Which I think is very important. You're you're going like real, like you want the opiate of the masses. You're not looking to be challenged. 
You, you think want, I should have watched Healthwise and well, learned how to poison no, my I'm just own? saying this. You're you're opting for sort of like the 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 cotton candy of the TV well, selection. Listen, we're only in, we're only at nine p.m. You know, I, I <laughs> did a many, whole night. How, how many <laughs> hours do we go? Uh, at eleven oh five. The, I'm going to watch a movie on TBS. There's a drama called A Lion is in the Streets. I didn't even know there was a TBS in 85. Sure. Rise and fall of a ruthless politician in the South, portrayed by James Cagney with his usual vitality. A Lion is in the Streets would be how I would end my night. That's perfect. Well, Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Sure. Sorry about the cat story, man. No, I mean, that's going to live forever. We're going to get some response. Yeah. It's all content, man. I have a cat podcast, actually, I'd like to plug. Turn your Uh, card. It's okay. We we don't have time for that. Until next week, as forces from within and without keep making their case that you should just give up on yourself and humanity as a whole, remember Tony Montana. Come on. Come on. God damn it! Okay! Don't you think you fuck with me, man? I'm Tony Montana! You fuck with me! You fuck with me back! Thanks for listening to Full Cast and Crew. I just wanted to remind everyone to subscribe if you haven't already, so you'll get a new episode every Thursday. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at fullcastandcrew, or find us on Facebook.